has once said that Christians become much less Christian once they get organized. You ever heard somebody say something to that effect? That Christians become less Christian the more organized we get? Or I'm sure you've heard something to this effect. Um, I love God and I want to follow God. I just don't want to do it within organized religion because organized religion is what's bad. I know that you've heard things like that said. I've heard that said too many times to count. But those statements, I think they summarize a debate that really has been going on for thousands of years and it will continue until Christ returns. And the debate is how much organization should be within the church of God? How much should we be organized or how little should we be, should we be organized? And in this debate, there's two extremes, two extreme patterns of thought. On the one end, there are some who believe that all organization is bad, all planning is bad, any sort of structure is bad, because all those things work against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is... Um, is, is uh, the Holy Spirit works in spontaneous ways. Spontaneity is the way that the Spirit works. And so the more planning that we have and the more organization and structure that we have, all those things work against the Spirit. I've even heard some people say that, that we should not even have planning in uh, worship services and things of that nature. I've heard people say that, that we shouldn't even plan what songs we're going to sing. It should also just be spontaneous. And the preacher shouldn't even plan what he's going to say, that it should all just be spontaneous because that's how the Spirit works. That's sort of one end of the extreme. The other end of the extreme goes like this. There are some who believe that the church should basically look like a Fortune 500 company structure and organization in everything that they do, boards and committees that oversee every aspect of the church, people in charge of everything, clearly laid out plans and procedures that the church follows in, in all events, chains of command, um, procedures and guidelines for everything that the church does, that, that basically the, the pastor should be very skilled at leading people and leading organizations and growing organizations and motivating people and all those sorts of things. That's sort of the other end of the extreme. Both of those are wrong and both of those are unbiblical. And we will see that the biblical, the godly way to do church, the, God, the way that God designs for His church to work, is somewhere in the middle. And we'll see this in the story today. In Acts chapter 6, we uh, will see the early church and its approach to organization. And, and, of course, this is a model for us to follow. We'll see as we study the story today and then as we continue on through the rest of the story of Acts, we will see that the early church indeed did have organization to it. It was an organized structure. But at the same time, we will also see that their organization was very minimal. In fact, they were organized only in ways that they had to be. And so that's what we'll see, I think, in a passage today and as we continue on through the story of Acts. So today we'll look at the first seven verses of chapter 6. And as we look at these verses, what I want you to keep in the forefront of your mind is this is talking about an organization of people, a group of people, and how they are sort of organizing themselves. What I want you to keep in mind as we talk about this is the size of this organization. We're not talking about a group of 20 or 30 or 50 people or even a couple of hundred people. We're talking about a group of people that right now, conservative estimates would put somewhere in the neighborhood of 15,000, maybe upwards of 20,000. 
So we're talking about an enormously large group of people. So with that in mind, let's begin with verse 1. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we read this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So verse 1 leads us to believe that some time has passed between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. The end of chapter 5, remember, was when the apostles were beaten up again by the Sanhedrin council. So Luke says, now in these days, so it seems as though some time has passed. We don't know how much, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few years has passed since the end of chapter 5. But in the passing of time, the church has continued to grow. These these, uh, disciples were increasing in number. So when a church grows, her problems grow with it. When a church grows, her problems grow with it. And we see that some problems have also arisen and increased in this church. Luke says, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because, of their, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what's all that about? What are these Hellenists and the Hebrews and what's the daily distribution and what's going on here? Well, let's give just a little bit of background to verse 1. If we rewind a couple hundred years back to an event that we know of as the exile, we remember what the exile was. The exile was a point at which God's patience with the sins of his people was exhausted. And his idolatrous people that had continued to turn away from him, they had finally invoked the wrath of God upon them. And so God allows the nation of Assyria to come into the north and defeat the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians come into the southern kingdom. And both of those empires utterly destroy Israel. And they carry most of the people off into captivity into Babylon. Now this was not a permanent judgment from God, but instead it was a temporary judgment from God. This period of exile in which most Israelites were carried away into foreign lands, this was to last, give or take, 70 years. So about 70 years goes by, and uh, a king by the name of Cyrus allows all of the Jewish exiles to return home if they like. Well, at this point, a lot of them do return back to Israel, but many of them don't. Because remember, 70 years has passed. And so in the passing of 70 years, the people who King Cyrus says can return back to Israel, back to their home in Israel, to them it's not their home. Because they weren't born there. They were born elsewhere. They were born in Babylon and other places. And so for them it wouldn't be returning home, it would be leaving home. And so a lot of Jews did return back to Israel when um, they were allowed to, but a lot of them chose to remain where they were they would become known as diaspora Jews. These were Jews who were Jewish by faith, but they did not live in Israel. They lived in other places. They spoke other languages. By the time of the writing of Acts, the uh, international language was Greek. And so these were Greek-speaking Jews, which is is what the word Hellenist means. They were Greek-speaking Jews who lived in Greek culture outside of Israel, but they were Jewish by faith. And there's these Hellenist Jews that are part of the church. Now, how did they become part of the church? Well, you remember Pentecost. Pentecost is this annual feast in which Jews from all over come to Jerusalem to celebrate the first feast, or the first fruits. And so, all of these Jews, you remember back in chapter 2, are in Jerusalem for the Pentecost celebration when the Pentecost event occurs. 
and many of them are converted to Christ, and in the coming days they're converted and they're, and they're grafted into the church. So the church now has a number of these Hellenist Jews, these, the, these people that were previously Jewish by faith, but they're Greek-speaking, and they're Greek by culture. They, they attend synagogues, or they used to attend synagogues in which the, the teaching was in Greek. They read their scriptures in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They're Greek by culture, but Jewish by faith. They're part of the church now. And in addition to this, there's also, of course, the Hebrews. The Hebrews would have been the Jews. They were previously Jews, who are now part of the church. But they're Aramaic-speaking. They go to the, to the synagogue, and the synagogue services are in Aramaic. They read their scriptures in Hebrew. And so they're both in the same church now. Now, there are some, there's some friction between these two groups. The Hellenist Jews were sort of considered to be second-class Jews by the Hebrew Jews. They were, they were the ones whose ancestors were smart enough to come back home to Israel, while these other Hellenist Jews, their ancestors didn't, and they stayed in other cultures. So there's this friction between the two. In fact, the Pharisees taught that Hellenistic Jews were literally second-class Israelites, second-class Jews. So there's this friction between the two groups. Now, Pentecost occurs, and all these people are converted to Christ. Conversion to Christ does not immediately erase all of their prejudices, right? So there's some prejudice that still exists between the two groups inside the church. Now, this, this um, manifests itself by way of these widows. Luke talks about the widows that are being neglected in the daily distribution. So what's that about? Well, widows in this day, as we know, were very, very much disadvantaged. If a woman was a widow then she had a very difficult time providing for herself. Women, widows generally did not remarry. Men did not marry women who had previously been married in this time. And so the prospects of remarrying were very slim. In addition to that, women just could not support themselves in this culture. Uh, women were not allowed to own property or land. They were not allowed to run a business. And so their prospects for supporting themselves were, were very slim for a single woman. A widow who did not have children who were willing to support her, particularly male children who would support her, that woman was in a very hard place. Typically, women who became widows late in life resorted to begging. Women who became widows early in life resorted to prostitution. That's generally how it worked. So here's all these widows, and they're in dire straits, which is why God has told his people to take care of widows. Deuteronomy 24, in your sermon notes there, is one of the many places where God's word tells his people that the widows are to be cared for. That's the whole, what the whole story of Ruth and Naomi is all about. The care for the widows among the people of God. And so the synagogues would take care of the Jewish widows. They would come to the synagogues every day, and if you were a widow, you could come to the synagogue and get food. And so that's how they would sustain themselves largely. But there's one problem now, and what's that problem? In particular with these widows. They're no longer in the synagogue. They're in the church now. And so by this point, either they've left the synagogue, or maybe the synagogue has even kicked them out. And so now it's up to the church to care for them, which the church is capable of doing. You remember back in chapter 2, everybody was selling all their stuff, and the church had all these resources to take care of people. Nobody had need. So the church is fully capable of taking care of these widows. But how many of them is it? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us how many widows it is. But we do know it was a lot. 
Jerusalem at this time had a disproportionate number of widows. And here's why. Of course, we know that in these days, um, women tended to marry older men. Men would usually marry a woman that was one or maybe two or even three decades younger than them. So oftentimes, women were in the position that their husbands passed passed on way before the end of their life. So naturally, there was a lot of widows in this time. Um, in addition to that, women just naturally live longer than men anyway. And so there's naturally a lot of widows in Jerusalem. But in addition to that, there's something else that's creating a huge number of widows in Jerusalem, and it's this. These diaspora Jews that we talked about, that they lived outside of, of Israel, they believed that it, it was just fine for a Jew to live outside of the promised land, but it was not okay for a Jew to die outside the promised land. In fact, the rabbis taught that there was special blessing for Jews who died in the promised land, in the land of promise, in particular in, Ju- in Jerusalem. In fact, some rabbis even taught, I know it sounds crazy, but some rabbis even taught that when the resurrection came, that only those bodies that were buried in Jerusalem would be resurrected. So, therefore, all these Jews who now live outside Palestine, they believe that it's okay to live outside Palestine, but when it's time to die... We need to get back to Jerusalem. So, naturally, all of these Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem, when the man was close to death, they would move back to Jerusalem, leaving even more widows in Jerusalem. So there's a huge number of widows to be cared for. And a lot of these widows are now plugged into the church and supposedly being cared for by the church, but there does seem to be some unfairness there's a complaint that comes up by the Greek-speaking widows or the Greek-speaking church people about their widows. The Greek-speaking widows seem to not be receiving an equal amount of care, an equal amount of, daily, of the daily distribution of goods. And the Hebrew widows seem to be receiving more. So this complaint comes up. We wonder here if this was intentional, if the church was intentionally discriminating against the Greek-speaking widows. We don't know. Perhaps they were. Again, the prejudices of the old life have not completely died away. So perhaps it's intentional, perhaps it's not intentional. Because again, they speak two different languages now. And there's always this, when there's a language barrier, there's, there's sometimes a problem communicating. So perhaps it wasn't intentional, we don't know. But whatever the case, it was causing problems. A complaint was brought before the apostles, before the Hebrew apostles, by the Greek Christians saying, our widows are being neglected. So here we see the third tactic of Satan to attack God's church. Satan is not happy. He's not happy because the church in Jerusalem is absolutely exploding. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 people in Jerusalem are now believing in Christ and trusting in Christ. And Satan is not happy about this one bit. So he has attacked the church. This is now the third tactic that we see from Satan. What was the first thing he did? You remember? He first attacked the church through persecution. He has these apostles thrown in jail and and beat up. He tries to to persecute the the church, and that doesn't work. In fact, that backfires. The more they persecute them, the more they beat the apostles, the more the church prays, and the more they grow. So that backfires on him. Then he tries the second tactic. You remember his second tactic? He tries to introduce sin into the church. He attacks the purity of the church. That was Ananias and Sapphira. And so his plan there was that through, through the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, he would cripple the church from the inside. That didn't work either because God purified his church. 
You remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. So that doesn't work, doesn't work either. This is now the third tactic that Satan is attacking the church with. And this is the divide and conquer tactic. Get Christians to fight with each other. And this is his tactic. He's still, in fact, using this tactic today, is he not? If the enemy can get Christians to fight one another, if the enemy can get Christians to be unhappy with one another, to complain against one another, then he has gained the upper hand and the work of the kingdom has been stifled. And that's exactly what he's trying to do here. He's right, this complaint from, from one Christian to another, from this one, the Hebrew Christians to the Greek Christians, this is dividing the church. It's working against what Jesus prayed in John 17, that they would be one as you and I are one. And the work of the church is, is threatened here. It's threatened to be stifled. And this is the tactic of Satan, divide and conquer what he's still using today. How often do we hear of something happens, somebody's uh, taken advantage of, somebody's not appreciated in, in, in some way, maybe somebody doesn't get a thank you note, somebody's overlooked, something happens, and the next thing you know, one Christian is not happy with another Christian. And the next thing you know after that is one Christian is complaining against another Christian, then they're grumbling, and the next thing you know, they're fighting. True story. You're going to think I'm making this up. True story that I read about a church in Dallas that underwent a church split. Um, Unfortunately, that's not the surprising part. But this church undergoes a church split. It was a rather large church. And they divide pretty much down the middle into two different churches. The problem was what to do with the property. Since the church was, was basically dividing in half, what happens with the property? This is a church, much like our church, like... Other churches, they own property and grounds and facilities. What, is, what happens to that property when the church splits? So this church was part of a larger denomination, fortunately not ours, but it was part of a larger denomination. And at that point, denominational leaders stepped in to try to arbitrate the split between the two different factions, which is exactly, by the way, what Paul tells us when he writes to the Corinthians, that when there's a dispute among you, you settle it among you. You don't take it outside the church. So these denominational leaders come in to to be arbitrators between the two groups to to determine, okay, how do we divide up the property? Well, in the process of the arbitration, they got down to the root of the problem, why it was that this church was splitting, and literally, again, you're going to think I'm making this up, literally the problem began when one of the elders of the church sits down at a church lunch beside a child and notices that the child was given a larger piece of ham than he. And from that, eventually came this church split. Unfortunately, all that made it into the papers. And I'm sure that was a really glowing witness for Christ in the city of Dallas. But you see, that's Satan's tactic. If he can get us fighting with one another, then he has the upper hand. He has stifled the work of the kingdom. And this is what happens here. Now verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. How often is it? We're just in chapter 6. How often already has Luke showed us what the church is placing as primary? The preaching and the teaching of the word of God. Over and over, Luke has already shown us how the early church considers the preaching and the teaching of the word of God to be the foundational aspect of what they do. So, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Now, let's not misunderstand what they're saying. They're not saying 
that serving the widows is unimportant. They're not saying that at all. They're not saying that ministry mercies are unimportant. They're not even saying that it's beneath them to do this. Here's what they are saying. They're saying, we have been called to do something else for the kingdom, and we will not sacrifice what we've been called to do to do what we haven't been called to do. You see, they are recognizing something very important here, that that it's very important for the church to recognize. And that is that God calls each individual believer to do a certain task for His body. And what He calls us to do, He equips us to do. And what He equips us to do should be what we pour ourselves into, not what He has not equipped us to do. That's the way the body of Christ works, right? Paul compares it to a physical body that has all different kinds of parts. Eyes and and hands and feet and nose and ears and everything. All these different parts, just like in our body, do different things. In the same way in the body of Christ, the body of Christ is to work that way. Different believers are equipped for different roles and it's important that believers recognize what they are equipped to do and then pour themselves into that and not into what they are not equipped to do. I'm not equipped to play the piano. I wish I was. But I'm not. I'm equipped to do other things in the body. And so we recognize what we're equipped to do and pour ourselves into that. That's very important for us, but it's also very important to recognize that in others in the body. Recognize what others are equipped to do and then encourage them, facilitate their pouring of themselves into what they are equipped to do. Here's how this often works in a way that's not exactly like Acts chapter 6 spells out for us. In the life of the church, there are lots of things that need to be done, right? And in today's culture in which devotion to the church is waning, um, and it's harder and harder, it seems, to find people that, that are willing to devote their time to roles within the church. And, and, and so the church, more and more, we seem to have things to, that need to be done that are unfilled. As we experience that, what the tendency is, is to try to just plug a warm body into that with little or maybe even no consideration into the spiritual equipping of that individual. Is this person spiritually equipped for this role? And so we oftentimes just, just consider, well, if someone's willing to do something, then let's plug them into that role, not considering whether or not they may be spiritually equipped for that role. A great example of this would be, um, for example, the, church, the children's church. Those of you ladies, mostly ladies, that serve on the church, children's church rotation and the nursery rotation, you guys are doing that every other Sunday or every third Sunday, aren't you? Because there's not enough to fill that role. And so what often happens when we're faced with that is, okay, let's just plug somebody in. Anybody who's willing to do that, let's plug them in there. Not considering whether they're spiritually qualified to do that or not. So here's the question. Must we be spiritually qualified to serve in basic roles within the church? Administrative types of of roles. Must we be spiritually qualified to count the Sunday school numbers? or um, uh, count the money, 
or fill the, fill the baptism with water? Must we be spiritually qualified to care for the property of the church? Must we be spiritually qualified to serve in the nursery? Well, to answer that question, let's look at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So this appears to be a rather basic, physical, administrative sort of task, divvying up food. And the apostles say, choose seven men who are qualified to do this, and then they list the qualifications needed. Now, if we notice these qualifications, there's four. Three of them are spiritual. The first qualification, don't miss that one, is that they be men. Uh, we don't have time to go down this, this uh, road today because this, this will take too much time, but it is the plan of God that His church be led by spiritually qualified men. That is about as politically incorrect of a thing that I can say, but that is the clear teaching of His Word for me to say that it is not God's plan that His church be led by spiritually qualified men, I would have to close my Bible and stop reading. You see in your sermon notes there, I've, I've listed several places where the Word of God teaches us that. It's a clear teaching of Scripture. Again, it's politically incorrect. We, don't have, we won't take the time to explain why God does it this way, but suffice to say that is God's plan. And so these leaders of the church are to be men, first of all. That's the only non-spiritual qualification, but also they're to be of good repute, good reputation. In other words, they're to be well thought of by people outside the church. Unbelievers are to think well of these leaders of the church. It matters what unbelievers think about us. Particularly, it matters what unbelievers think of our leaders. Just like Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, it matters what unbelievers think about the leaders of the church. So they're to be of good reputation. They're to be full of wisdom. Wisdom is a spiritual qualification. Proverbs 1 verse 7 tells us that the beginning of, the, of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So wisdom, true wisdom from God, is a spiritual qualification. But then look at the main one. They're to be full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit. In order to divide up the food equitably, they need to be filled by the Spirit. That is a spiritual qualification. What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? Remember how we've talked about the filling of the Spirit means that, first of all, we belong to God. We are truly redeemed, born again, children of God, conformed to His Lordship in our life. We are, we are submitting to His authority in our life. But it also means that we are filled with testimony for Christ, that we speak Words of testimony for Christ. Again and again, that's what Acts shows us, that the filling of the Spirit means that we are speaking testimony for Christ. So here these men, in order to divide the food among the widows, must be good witnesses for Christ. In order to do a very basic, very administrative sort of task, there are spiritual qualifications, and one of those is that they are good witnesses for Christ. So let's now take this and apply it to the church today. Are there spiritual qualifications to take care of the church property or to serve in the nursery or to lead in worship? Absolutely. There are spiritual qualifications for even the most basic role in the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a physical kingdom yet. It is a spiritual kingdom. 
And so therefore there are spiritual requirements for the, for the leaders, for the, the roles within the kingdom of God. And so this is what we see in verse 3. Now take a look at verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. In other words, you serve the food, we'll serve the Word. You serve the food, we'll serve the Word. So then notice here, again, the primacy of, pre, of, the, of the role of preaching, preaching and teaching the Word of God. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. What do we see here in verse 4 is something that, I think verse 4 is a good, healthy reminder for us in the church. What we see the apostles teaching here is the concept of excellence in serving the kingdom. Excellence in serving the kingdom. Serve the kingdom with excellence. In whatever way you have been called to serve the kingdom of God, in whatever way God has equipped you to serve in His kingdom, do so with excellence. It says we will devote ourselves to these two things. That that, that word devote ourselves. Remember we saw that before in chapter 1 verse 14. And again in chapter 2 verse 24. When the people were devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. What this means is that the apostles completely poured themselves into this. Completely spent themselves on their devotion to the, these two things. Prayer and the ministry of the word. So often I think in, in God's church today. Instead of having a theology of serving God with excellence, we have a theology of serving God with what we'll do, with what suffices, with what gets the job done. So often, I think believers will serve their career with more excellence than they'll serve the kingdom of God. Or they'll serve their hobby with more excellence than they'll serve the kingdom of God. And so, whatever sort of gets by, whatever, you know, they won't notice. They'll like it. That's just fine. This will work. This is telling us. This is giving us a a gentle corrective. Serve the kingdom with excellence. Whatever you have been equipped to do, pour yourself into that and do it to the best of your God-given ability. So they're going to devote themselves to two things here. First of all, they're going to devote themselves to prayer. They are following, of course, the example of Jesus. Jesus was a man of prayer. In fact, when He called these disciples to follow Him, you remember what He had done the whole night previously? He had prayed all night long before choosing the twelve apostles. So He was a man of prayer. They're, uh, They're following, of course, the example of Paul, which will come later. But the example of Paul, Paul was a man of prayer. Let me just read to you a few examples of, of Paul's prayer life. Romans chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, Paul says to the Romans, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Ephesians 1, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Philippians 1, 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. And in Colossians 1, verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you. And I could go on and on, because every time Paul writes a letter to a church, he tells that church how much he's been praying for them. Paul was a man of prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. These apostles devote themselves to a life of prayer, because to lead God's people, they must be men of prayer. I see a statistic 
that's been going on for a long time. It's the same, about the same t- statistic I see every year, and it's this. The amount of time spent in prayer each day by the average pastor. You want to guess what the average pastor says that he spends in prayer each day? Seven minutes. Seven minutes is the average that pastors say they spend in prayer each day. What makes us think that we can lead the people of God off of seven minutes a day? To lead the people of God, we must be men of prayer. And so they're going to devote themselves to prayer. Also, they're going to devote themselves to the ministry of the Word. The ministry of the Word. Basically, that means, I believe, the study of the Word and the growth in the Word. So we've seen over and over again that the early church considers the most important thing that the church does is the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. And if the most important thing that the church does is the preaching and the teaching of God's Word, what's the most important way that the leader of the church spends his time? Studying God's Word. Time and again, we have seen the primacy of preaching in the early church. And we're going to see this even more to come. In 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says to Timothy, himself a pastor, he says, I charge you in the name of God and Christ Jesus, preach the word. That is the primary role of the church, preaching the word. And so if that's the primary activity of the church, then the primary activity of the leader of the church should be preparation to preach the word. Study to preach the Word. Dr. Donald Barnhouse, I know everybody, well not everybody, but perhaps many of you will recognize his name. Dr. Donald, Donald Barnhouse was a giant among preachers. He said this, he said, no man is ever going to be able to fill the pulpit adequately unless he spends thousands of hours year after year in the study of God's Word. Thousands of hours year after year. Now I did the math. Thousands of hours year after year. Even 1,000 hours a year divided up by 52 weeks is 19 hours a week. Even 1,000 hours is 19 hours per week. That's what Barnhouse says is needed in order to adequately fill the pulpit. That much devotion to the ministry of the Word. How does that compare, I wonder, with many of the preachers that I've encountered that consider... Study of the Word, preparation of the Word, preparation of sermons, they consider that to be maybe secondary in their ministry. That most important is visitation. Most important is going to the hospital. Most important is all that engaging in those sorts of ways. And secondary to that is the study of the Word. I know many preachers that way. And I can sympathize. Because their their heart is, is broken for people. And so they're burdened by people. And they want to be with people and minister to people. So I can can sympathize with that. But that doesn't match up with Acts chapter 6, verse 4 very well, does it? I know many pastors who will sacrifice sermon preparation altogether in lieu of other things during their week. And again, we can see where their heart lies. But a corrective from Acts chapter 6, verse 4 tells us 
the most important thing that happens in the church is the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And the most important thing that the pastor can do is prepare himself so that when he steps into the pulpit, he has something to say that's worth listening to. And so we see they devote themselves to the Word and they devote themselves to prayer. Now verse 5, And what they said pleased the whole congregation. So this isn't just the leaders saying, listen, we want to study God's Word all the time. This is all the people agreeing together. Yes, we see this as good. You devote yourself to prayer and to the study of the Word. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So we see these names here. A couple of them we recognize right away. Stephen and Philip. We'll see those names quite often from this point on. In fact, the next two chapters are all about Stephen. And Philip, we'll see his name again and again. He's the one who is going to lead the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. And so then the gospel goes to Africa. And then he's going to lead the Samaritans in a, in a revival. The Samaritans are going to come to Christ at the hands of Philip. And so we're going to see these two names again and again. And we see what God is going to use them for. They're powerful, powerful evangelists for Christ. We remember Stephen's sermon as they're stoning him. And we remember what Philip is going to do for the kingdom of God. And we see how God is preparing them for those tasks by raising them up to this task. God prepares Philip to take the gospel to Africa and to lead the Samaritans in a revival. He prepares Philip by having Philip serve tables. He prepares Stephen by having Stephen administer the food to widows. He prepares his people for big things by first giving them the opportunity to be faithful in small things and to do small things with excellence. Jesus tells the parable of the the three servants, one of them wicked, two of them faithful. He says this in Matthew 25, verse 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. That's how God prepares His people. He prepares us for larger things by giving us the opportunity to pour ourselves into smaller things and do smaller things with excellence. That's how He's prepared me. Not that I'm doing big things for the kingdom, but God has prepared me for this by first allowing me the opportunity to do small things with excellence. Teach a Sunday school class. Organize some men's prayer groups. Organize some missions trips. Deacon. God prepared me in those ways for other things. Right now, God is preparing Ben. I'm, I'm here to tell you guys, God, I believe, has big things in store for Ben. And he's preparing him for those things, among other ways, by right now, has him in a place where he's leading a youth group of four or five. Not too big for the kingdom, but God is preparing him for other things in that way. That's how God prepares us. That's how he's preparing Stephen and Philip and these others. And don't be mistaken, this is not easy preparation. Although this seems like just giving out food, it's not easy preparation because notice all the names are Greek names. And where was the problem? The problem was with the Greek widows. And so now all of these Greek men have been raised up to be the ones who administer the food to the Greek widows, who are their own widows, but at the same time they've got to minister to the Hebrew widows. And so now they have to minister to those people whom they probably personally personally feel like that they were being slighted by. You see what God's doing here? 
He's preparing them in this way. And so they do this. They do church God's way. They follow God's example here. They love God more than they love stuff. Therefore, they love people more than they love stuff. And so they're doing church God's way. And what is the result in verse 7? And the Word of God... I'm sorry, verse 6. They set these before the apostles and they prayed. Once again, the early church is praying again. They prayed and they laid their hands on them, just simply confirming God's call. And then the result of this, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. When they do church God's way, people are saved. Even the enemies of the gospel are converted. The priests are converted in large numbers. When we do church God's way, whether or not it makes sense to us, whether or not that's how we would have designed it, whether or not we think it's politically correct or not, when we do church God's way, God is glorified and people are saved.